This week on the podcast, we are releasing our third installment of the Artists Asking Artists series featuring Guy Tal and Alex Noriega. Guy has been a huge inspiration to so many of us, but I knew that Alex has always held deep admiration for Guy and his work, so I thought it would make for a great iteration of the Artists Asking Artists series. We covered so many excellent topics, and I feel like this episode is really just one of the best that we've released. As such, your support of the show on Patreon is greatly appreciated. If you value this sort of content, Patreon is a fantastic way to show it. It's just a lot of work to produce these podcasts, and Patreon is how we keep the show going. You can even pledge annually if you want to keep it simple. Just see the show notes for details. Also, please do stay tuned all the way to the end for some excellent discounts and offers from both Guy and Alex that you will not want to miss out on. Lastly, I wanted to apologize for my raspy voice. I had just recovered from COVID when we recorded this one. Okay, let's get to this week's episode with Guy Tal and Alex Noriega. All right, Guy Tal and Alex Noriega, it is an absolute pleasure to have you back on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. This is our third installment of the Artists Asking Artists series. And um, actually, when I first thought of this idea, you were the first two people I thought of. So um, I'm so glad that you both agreed to come on. So, no yeah. Problem. So, yeah, maybe just real quick, um, have you guys introduced yourselves, even though you've both been on the podcast um, before multiple times. So, Guy, why don't you go ahead and kick that off? Uh, okay. I'm uh, Guy Tal. I'm a photographer and writer. <clears throat> I live in uh, Torrey, Utah, out in the Utah Canyon country, uh, right at the top of the, the grand staircase. Uh, I've been doing professional photography for a long time now, <laughs> probably full time for about 15 years or so. Um, yeah. And general photography for going on 35 plus years now, I'm guessing. Awesome. Alex? Uh, I'm Alex Noriega. I, for the last three years, have been traveling in an RV with my girlfriend. Uh, that may be coming to an end next year, and I might be settling down in Utah, actually. So, uh, But I, I spend most of my time photographing the Southwest, and I've been doing it professionally maybe eight years now, shooting for about 12, so quite a bit newer, and I've been very inspired by Guy's work over the years. Thank you very much. Awesome. Well, you already answered my very first question that I was just going to kick us off with, Alex, but it was, uh, why were you excited to be the co-host for Guy Tao? Well, it's, it's a little more complicated than just having been inspired by Guy. Um, when I first got into nature photography, it was because of a trip I made across the U.S. from the Midwest to the West Coast. And we saw a lot of things on that trip that I had never seen before growing up. Midwest, but the most memorable part for me was driving through Utah and kind of through Guy's neighborhood on I-70 and just like the rugged uplift of the landscape and driving through like these huge, well, actually uh, the Canville Reef, like an extension of the water pocket pulled Capitol Reef National Park. It was just, it blew my mind. And like, I never forgot that. And very shortly after that trip, dedicated my photography to landscapes and then a few years later i ended up uh, realizing that this area was kind of where i wanted to focus my efforts specifically because the first few years in photography i was all over i was pacific northwest uh, west coast 
Like I didn't really have a direction. Um, but when I started looking into South Central Utah, like Guy's work always came up. I mean, he's very prolific there and he's lived the life clearly. Um, so yeah, I just feel like for the area that I've been interested in and the sorts of subjects that I've been interested in and the sorts of photography that I have gravitated towards over the years, like just nothing speaks to me more than guys work. So thank you very much. Yeah, really. And for people who may not know this, I personally think guy is one of the best uh, writers in the photography, uh, um, the landscape photography landscape as it were. So, um, I've always been inspired by just your, you always trigger me to think about something in a different way. So I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. So Alex, let's kick us off with your, your very first question for Guy. Okay. So, um, it's said that great art comes from suffering, right? I think that's an idea that's out there at least or pervasive, but I personally having struggled with depression more in the last few years have found it really difficult to work or create when depressed. And I feel like you've alluded to depression or something along those lines in previous writings. And I'm just curious how that interacts with creativity for you, how you're able to create or if you're able to. Um, yes. And actually it's sort of a, a paradoxical relationship. I guess I'm going to out myself as a p- part of the reason for my struggles with depression, which are lifelong is a form of bipolar disorder that I have. So my depressive episodes can be very deep and very painful and, uh, you know, to a point of questioning life, you know, that it gets existential, <clears throat> but, uh, on the other hand, and this is where the complexity comes in, is if I try to think of if you took that depression away from me, if I was just a happy-go-lucky person just cruising through life, if I had that choice, I'm not sure I would take it. Uh, I think that my struggles with depression and overcoming depression fairly frequently has uh, <clears throat> increased the depth and the richness of my life consider because it makes me a lot more mindful of my own state of my own you know limited time on this earth it allows me to connect with things it allows me to really live in the moment and not just think everything's going to be okay and you know 50 years from now i'm just going to retire and do what i want Uh, so it really deepened it really made me relate to my world i mean as far back as my childhood this this isn't something that i just decided at some point uh in, in a very very direct and very emotionally powerful way. Uh, and I think that that has enriched my experiences in my life and also moved me to try to resist some of that depression by finding beauty, by writing about beauty, by by finding, struggling sometimes to find the, the positive and the beautiful things in my life. And I think that's made me a lot more resilient as a person. So it is complex. Yeah, it's definitely not easy dealing with chronic depression, but it I think it has made me a better artist. And by the way, you mentioned that, you know, it's not really a, a cliche about the, the link between depression and creativity. Uh, there's a lot of good psychology, a lot of good research behind it. There's a very good book called The Dark Side of Creativity uh, that has a lot of essays about that, if that interests you, if you want to learn some of the science behind it. I feel like maybe I should learn because I find it difficult unless I'm just feeling great, completely unencumbered by the rest of life to actually create. I just feel so distracted. Um, yes. Otherwise, 
Yes. And then that's the other thing that it taught me is sometimes I feel so down that I, I know that I just can't create, that I can't do anything creative until I pull myself out. And so I, I, when, when I do feel creative, it's always just like this huge creative fountain where I feel, okay, right now I just have to capitalize on this when I'm feeling good, when I'm mindful, when I'm aware of beauty, when I feel this sense of reverence to the world, the, the sense of clinging to life because I want to live. Uh, all that really plays into me wanting to create things. Well, and so Alex, it's, it's in spurts. Yes, very much. And, and Alex, I, I know you've expressed a little, you've been struggling with it as well. Uh, how is that uh, relationship with that and your photography from your perspective? I just feel like I my production has gone way down. I mean, mm. not that we should be measuring by the amount or frequency that we're putting out photos, but uh, like, for example, this year I have two photos from Olympic and then I have a set of 20 something from Death Valley and that's it this year. And it's, it's September already, you know, like I feel like in previous years I would have been producing a lot more and I'm pretty happy with the work that I make, but I just feel like it's so much harder to get in the mindset to make it. Yeah. And, and I don't know if that helps or hurts, but I've, I've gone through a period where for a year or more, I just didn't feel like I was doing anything really meaningful or important, but you, you just got to learn to, to live with it and to work through it. And when you come out the other end, you're, you're stronger for it. Right on. I just, I didn't know if people, you know, if other artists, or should I say if a, a really great artist who I know has struggled with it was actually creating during these periods and if i was just an exception like unable to or if it's more i, I guess the the bipolar thing sort of explains that i'm a little bit that way too yeah it's it's, the it's more hard to say periods. you know yeah, yeah it's hard to say yeah i actually don't get manic you know like uh like normal bipolar people do i get hypomanic which is slightly different but yeah right well starting off on a good note there yeah. All right. Although okay. I, I do love that topic. I think it's really relevant for a lot of people. And, you know, I think for so many people I've talked to, photography can be such an incredible um, pathway to healing and for emotional expression and things of that nature. So I think it's an important thing to talk about. Yeah. But even, even if it's not healing, it just helps carry you through, you know, it just helps give meaning to your moments, whether they're good or bad. Mm. I think in that sense, it, it kind of gives you this, this lifeline, this constant thread that you're, you're all, that's always with you. Brilliant. Yeah. We're lucky to have photography, I think as a constant in our lives, I just feel like no matter what else is going on, I always come back to it. I always know it's there. It's kind of, I don't feel completely lost. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about you, you guys, but whenever I, I can just feel it. When I just need to get out and make photos, you know, it's like, you know, maybe my just something out, my job is going really badly or like a string of negative events. And it's like, oh, I should go on a trip and take a few photos. And it always helps, you know, even if you come back empty handed. <laughs> yeah. I was yeah. going to say for me, it's just the experience of, of being out. And yeah, it's not about what you come back with. That's, yeah. Yeah. Photos will come when they come. Yeah. All right, Alex. All right, Matt. No. You're the you experienced pug. Oh, just <laughs> teach me how to do a transition here. Just give me the first one. Yeah. You know, my favorite <laughs> saying is, uh, well, let's shift gears to another subject. And then my listeners nobody, always make fun of me. For nobody drives a manual gears. anymore. Yeah. I feel like that expression is getting outdated. <laughs> they don't even sell manual transmissions. Right. You could come up with something else. I don't know. Like, oh, maybe this is a good segue to 
All right. Well, it sounded like you had a segue, so please continue. Oh, I did it, but uh, that's okay. Oh, okay. Maybe that, that was the segue. <laughs> yeah, so, well, my next question is sort of along those lines, but more, um, it seems like you, I mean, you live in a very remote area, and it's so quiet. I've spent a lot of time around there. There's really not a lot going on. It's kind of what you'd call a one-horse town. I mean, except the landscape, which is incredible. And do you feel like kind of a mad scientist in that you have sequestered yourself a little bit from society in order to focus on what you find important? Maybe at one point that was it, but uh, it's really been more of a, an ongoing transition throughout my life just to move myself further and further away from, uh, from, you know, intensely social, intensely populated areas. It's just my personality. I'm, I'm very reclusive. I have no problem spending a lot of time by myself. Um, I'm never bored by myself. I love reading. I love listening to music. I love writing. I love doing creative things. So, um, yeah, so for me, it's it's really more about finding my my comfortable niche in the world, and and you know, it's it's kind of hard to explain because I think most people think of you know, there's the house where I live, and there's the town where I live, and there's the the society, and then the group of friends where I live, and then all these places are separated by all these miles of deserts and forests, and uh, that that's out there. And for me, it's almost the reverse, which is I live in those spaces, and <laughs> every now and then I'll I'll come out to interact and and to do. You know, <laughs> to socialize, but for the most part, when I when I go out, I feel like I'm I'm going back. I'm not going to a place. So I, I'm going back out. I'm going back to places that are you know where where I feel at home. I see. Well, I kind of mentioned the mad scientist thing just because I feel like a lot of the great artists that we talk about from the past seem to have been completely immersed in their work and not just kind of we get warriors, so to speak. So. I know a lot of people in today's society have to do photography in the margins, right? They have other things going on in life. And it seems like you've actually lived the life, so to speak, in that you immersed yourself in it and, and you're spending so much time out there. It's almost like you live out there. I, I do. I mean, if, if you literally, if you added up the, the amount of time that I spent among people throughout the year, it might amount to <clears throat> about four weeks. And most of that is on my workshops. Other than yeah. that, I'm pretty much alone. I mean, my wife works from home, but I have my office in a separate building from the house. So when I'm at home, I'm alone in my office. <laughs> and when I'm out, I'm out usually by myself. Yeah, it's interesting. Guy. <clears throat> it's interesting, guy. I was, um, as I was mentioning before we recorded, I was spent some time reading one um, of your recent books, Another Day Not Wasted. And we'll talk more about that later too, because I have a couple of questions. But you did talk a lot about the importance of photographing alone versus being around other people. And I'm kind of this rare weirdo. I'm like a biver. I'm like an introvert and an extrovert. Like I can do both. Like I like both. I don't, I like being alone and I like being around people too. And I found the creative influences for both situations to be valuable for me in my process and my learning, especially. So I'm curious um, when you're teaching workshops and you're around you know, you're with others, you're with students and they're with other, around other people. Like, how do you, um, convey to them the, you know, the value of one or the other, given that in the workshop setting, typically people are not by themselves. Well, 
There's two parts of that. One is I don't want to convince them to be like me. I want to convince them to be like themselves. Love that. If they're more socially comfortable than I am, then that's fine. <laughs> the, the idea is to be comfortable in your own skin to a point where you can do creative work and not feel distracted. So for me, just the presence of another person around me is sufficient to distract me from that. And I know for other people, it's not. So uh, it's not that my way is right for everyone. It's probably not right for most people. Uh, and the other thing is, uh, usually when we start our workshop, we, we always start with a class and then we spend several other prolonged sessions in the classroom talking about things. And one of the first things that I like to uh, have people keep in the back of their mind is that a lot of the things that we teach on the workshop, you can't really practice on the workshop uh, because that, that idea of mindfulness, that idea of sitting quietly and absorbing things, that idea of thinking about composition and looking at the elements around you and really immersing yourself in that experience, that's extremely hard to do in a workshop. I mean, you're surrounded with people you've usually just met. Uh, you get up early, you go to bed late, you're tired, you don't always get your meals on time. You're probably in a place that you may not have been. So it's not a it's not a condition that's conducive to, to deep mindfulness. So I want to give them the tools that they can then take with them. And then throughout the workshop, I want to encourage them to practice the techniques that would later hopefully help them. And so in our critique sessions at the end, we're not looking for, you know, greatest image or prettiest view or anything like that. We want people to present photographs that they believe are creative and expressive, even if they're completely, you know, in every other sense, unsuccessful, just to explain the thought process that went into them, what they were trying to do, why they were doing things the way that they did. And to me, that I think is the more valuable part of the workshop. It's not just a location tour. It's really a teaching and learning experience. And it helps that it's in a beautiful place that people learn to relate to uh, the longer we stay there. Uh, but the point of the workshop is really to learn creative techniques, really to learn ways of thinking about photography, about con conducting yourself out in the, in the landscape. Um, so, yeah, I, I try to address that up front, you know, just try to set expectation. You know, we're not here for you to make the, the world's best sunrise at Zabriskie Point. We're here for you. Yeah, I mean, we're going to be there because it's a spectacular place to see and it will help you relate to the place and understand something. But we're. We're going to use most of our time trying to practice creative techniques, whether they're successful on the spot or not. I thought you'd only take good photos at sunrise and sunset. So, you know, I've been told that a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys know there's an algorithm you can follow to make good photos? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe just some prompts for AI. And, uh, yeah, right. Yeah. That's the whole. That's what's funny in your book. You actually said that. And you're like, AI is the next thing. And now it's like everyone's posting mid journey photos. I'm like, oh. I actually listened to your podcast episode with Matt, your first one, which was like episode 16 or something, just mm -hmm. to freshen up for this one and, uh, I, or to refresh my mind. And, uh, I think you mentioned AI created art then, like, and that was like five years ago. And yeah, I, I, excuse me, I'm, I'm a bit of a, a science buff. So I like to read a lot of science, technology, philosophy. I just, my brain is such that I just got to constantly feed it <laughs> with stuff. Uh, and so, yeah, the discussions around AI have been going on for, for a long time. <clears throat> and that's uh, definitely not simple. There's a lot of good things about it. A lot of things that uh, could uh, could uh, shift our, our way of life very pervasively in the years ahead. So, so we can blame you, Guy, for being the harbinger of AI's demise <laughs> of photography. I'm just an observer. Right? <laughs> yeah. don't, don't shoot the messenger. Yeah, no. Actually, I was in technology fairly, very early on, so I've seen a lot of the internet technologies 
coming coming to the market. I've I've had access. I was working in internet technology before it became a public service. So I got to see a lot of this landscape, this technological landscape created, uh, and that was really interesting. Yeah. Well, I think this is a good segue. You are big on expressive photography, and you've said that your images help you express what you feel, express something within you. And I've always found what exactly I'm expressing with my photography. And maybe this is because I'm still relatively new at 12 years in versus 35 years in. Um, I've just found it to be kind of intangible, like not easily articulated. I, I can mm-hmm. feel something when I look at my photos, but I don't, they're not necessarily metaphors for the human condition or how I was feeling at a particular time. So can you give me an example of something uh, in your yes, photography? And it's actually good that, that you is, said that because I don't yeah. think it's, it's as simplistic as saying, you know, I feel X and I'm going to create a photograph that will make you feel X that, you know, that naive idea of the equivalence that, that Alfred Stieglitz had. I, I don't think you can, maybe, maybe you can do it in a very simplistic way, but I think that, um, the, the human human psyche, the, the our sense of the world, our sense of ourselves is is very complex. Has a lot of different dimensions, and not all of them are expressible in in words. Not all of them are expressible visually. And where I like my work to be is in that area of things that you know. I I, I also write, and I also. I don't want to create a photograph that would pretty much tell you what I could write better. Uh, I want a photograph that can express something in a more immediate and more visceral way than I could do it in words. Uh, and that's that's the area where I, I like to be. If you think of photography and, and, and writing as, as two media, as two means of communication, then yeah, there's a lot of overlap between the things that they can express. But there's also areas where one can do things that the other can't, where you can express something either in words or in, or visually that you couldn't do with the, with the other medium. <clears throat> and th- those are the things that are most interesting to me. Uh, so what I try to do, um, you know, being expressive, uh, I, I recognize upfront that visual expression is by its nature ambiguous because visual perception is not absolute. It's not like words where a word has a specific meaning. Uh, different people will infer different meaning from different things depending on their personality, depending on the mood that they are, depending on the society that they're from, depending on the metaphors that they were raised within. Uh, so I don't really expect to have that exact one-to-one. And I think that that actually makes art more powerful as leaving some room for people to fill in something that makes it meaningful to them. So what I want to try to do is try to nudge them towards something that I'm feeling. Uh, and whether it's a sense of reverence, a sense of beauty, a sense of mindfulness, you know, paying attention to little details, to little arrangements, really things that, you know, a random person even standing right next to me might not notice. And that I notice because of who I am, because of how I feel at a certain time, because of uh, my experience in photography and learning what I can do with it over the years. So I want to create things that are not things that a person would see by default. And I think this... It's a very interesting discussion because when you talk about photography as a mimetic medium, as, as a medium that conveys appearances as is, as setting expectations of here's what you would have seen if you were there or here's what you would see if you go there. Those are photographs that I deliberately avoid. <clears throat> I want to create photographs that even even in in situations where a lot of people go to the same place, I hopefully have some way to express something about my experience in that place that a random person wouldn't necessarily notice or almost certainly wouldn't notice. Uh, well, there's, I'm not sure if I answered the question. But. No, I mean, regardless of whether you did, it's still going in an interesting direction. Um, yeah. the, I think that it. I've always thought that it's really in the eye of the beholder anyway, like how it's interpreted, like 
regardless of whether I had a specific story for a photo, I don't know that that's going to come through. I mean, there's so many different ways you can interpret it, so many different ways someone can see it. All I can do, all I'm in control of is what I feel when I look well, at that, my own that's not, Yeah, that, that's not entirely true. Uh, if you read uh, some of the, I mean, it's, it's how it is fairly recent science coming in from neuroaesthetics and, you know, maybe a few decades ago from gestalt psychology is, is there are ways that you can influence people's perception using visual elements. I mean, color would be the most obvious. Certain colors have certain emotional connotation, but even arrangement of line, placement of things within the frame, all these things have meaning. So when, when someone looks at a photograph, they have this holistic impression. You know, they don't just say, oh, there's a red thing here and a yellow thing here and a little tree over there. Now I understand what you're saying. That's, that's how written language works, but not how visual language works. With visual language, you look at an image and you instantly grok it you instantly feel it in your gut what it means to you and maybe the longer you look the more refined that impression will be you might find some surprises and that's something that i cover in my workshop is once you learn some of these cues and some of these effects you realize that there's a certain set of visual cues that are it's pretty universal uh where you can very predictably elicit certain responses to certain things and that comes from neuro from neuroaesthetics uh one of the founders of the science of neuroaesthetic uh, vs ramachandran he, he actually believes that some of these uh aesthetic rules apply even beyond humans even to even to other other uh, animals uh so Part of what neuroaesthetics is trying to do is trying to decipher what those cues are, how visual system works and how they translate into perceptions in the brain. And, you know, this is not not through through, you know, uh, trying to guess what happens. This is hard science, you know, putting people in fMRI machines or putting people with, uh, you know, uh, helmets over their heads, sending them into a museum and looking what parts of the brain light up and what talks to what and what happens, you know. Uh, and, and to me, that's just fascinating. So. That science is extremely nascent right now. There's not a lot that's known. But still, there are some things, if you, if you look online for visual illusions, for example, you can see that there are things that people just don't get. If you look at experiments like, you know, the, the invisible gorilla experiment, you know, yeah. you can fool people's visual system. You can, you can feed them cues where they don't even know why they're feeling certain things. And I have some examples of that in my teaching material in the workshop. Um, and so, yeah, uh, you just kind of learn what's, what, what some of these things are and how you can guide your viewers. So, Guy, you're, you're equipped with all of this amazing knowledge because you're well-read, you spent a lot of time researching other things other than photography, including psychology, neuroscience, positive psychology, things of that nature. So when you're in the field alone, obviously, how do you make those immediate connections to your knowledge base of what can kind of trick the viewer into kind of perceiving different things? And connecting that to your actual field process of, okay, I'm noticing these things. Like I'm, I have a really hard time doing that when I'm in the field. It's more intuition on my end. I, I, I'm, oh, yeah, oh yeah, actually, that's exactly what's going to be my answer. Is the point is not to to apply these recipes and to think in those terms. I don't do that consciously. The point is to evolve your intuition of what might work, of, of making this connection, this equivalence between what you want to express and what in your environment or what in later processing you can use to convey that feeling or something close to that feeling. Um, and yeah, for a while, you know, when I learned something new, I would go out and I would practice it and I would try it. And sometimes I would use workshop students as guinea pigs, you know, let's see if I put this on the screen and I'm going to say this, let's see who gets it. Let's see who doesn't. And sometimes it's kind of funny. Um, I, I have one example. Well, now everybody who's going to come to my workshop is going to know what it is, but I have one example just talking about the visual weight of the color red. 
and I have this photograph of, you know, it's a really weird photograph. I won't describe it too much, but there's really big red patches on it. And it used to be that I thought, you know, people will, will really figure out that something is wrong here very quickly. So I would put it on the screen and I say, you know, the, the red really grabs your attention. And then I'd immediately spill the beans about, hey, have you noticed all that? And then I realized people just don't get it. I can leave it on the screen and I can just chat away and talk and people are looking at it. Like they don't see something that's obvious that's right in front of their face because those big red patches are grabbing their attention. And so I think you kind of gain confidence and intuition the more you practice it. I don't think there's, there's, you know, Edward Weston said there are no shortcuts in photography uh, and specifically in creative and expressive photography is a lot of it is about training your own intuition. The more you do it, the better you get at it, the more you discover what works and what doesn't work and you experiment with different things and you see, you know, how effective things are. And at the end of the day, a lot of times, well, not a lot of times, but a fair amount of the time, I would make photographs that I, I just know in my gut that other people would not get, but I love making them. Uh, if you go on my website now, I think I have a gallery called uh, Seeking Question. That's something I've been working on in the last uh, few years, which is this really weird black and white patterns that to me have just been extremely enjoyable to work on. I just get completely immersed, you know, just, just looking and thinking about what I could do with them. Uh, and I've, I've shared them with a couple of, of pretty, pretty good experts in photography, pretty well-known photographers. I won't help them. Uh, and neither of them like these things, but both of them are just not, that's not, not my thing. <laughs> They're the, but for are those me, the it was just so to? enjoyable to make that I, yeah, I just don't care. I'm sorry. Those, are the, those are the warm tone black and whites. Yeah, there weren't um, black and whites and some of them are inverted and some of them are just these weird patterns. And I just, for me, it's an exercise in visualization where I see something very literal that would be kind of boring in itself, but I can see all the little hues and lines in it. And I know that I can extract them in processing. And just, just that thought process for me is just extremely enjoyable, uh, you know, even if nobody else gets it. So, so yeah, there's work that I know other people will relate to. And as long as I have enough of that, you know, cause I still need to pay my bills with photography. So as long as I have enough of those, <laughs> I allow myself to go out and play and, and do things that, you know, even if I know that most people wouldn't get them. Well, none of your work really strikes me as anything that would be on the level of trying to be people pleasing like postcard type stuff you know but but obviously yeah, some you know, i guess like a, a tree with rainbow brush is maybe more relatable than a strange pattern black yeah yeah and and you know for, for me that's I, I get i get bored with things very quickly so if i can't do novel things, if I can't do interesting things, if I can't experiment with things that I haven't done before, I would probably have gotten bored with photography a long time ago. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I you know, going out and shooting epic view, I can do it almost any day within 15 minutes of my house, but that, that just, <clears throat> that's just not as satisfying to me anymore. Uh, if you know who uh, Stuart Brand was, uh, still is, I guess, <clears throat> uh, was a really smart guy. He was uh, the creator of something called the Whole Earth Catalog. Maybe some people remember that. Really smart guy. So he, he, he has a saying that uh, I found really interesting. He said, when you realize that you can do something in your sleep, then wake up and go do something else. <laughs> actually a good advice. Um, yeah. I have a decent segue off that actually. So your gallery that you were just talking about is pretty far removed from reality because it's, yes. I mean, it's black and white and they're, you really, I can tell that you've done a lot to bring out whatever that fractal pattern was or whatever it is that you mm -hmm. saw to separate it from the ordinary and kind of create something else out of it. And I think that when people talk about your work, nobody really mentions the processing 
but it's actually, aside from the brilliant compositions, it's like the thing that stands out the most to me because it's not necessarily realistic, so to speak. It's very artistic, um, but it's so obviously intentional. It's not like you're heavy handed for no reason. And it's still really connected to reality, which is unique to photography. And having experienced a lot of these same subjects firsthand, like I spent a lot of time in your area, um, I would describe your processing as looking the way that things feel in my memory. So like I was looking at a photo today, uh, that was trees against the Canyon wall and the Canyon wall was such a deep, satisfying red. And I know that it was not that in camera, but that's, it looks completely natural. Um, yeah. It looks how it feels to me, you know, and I guess I'm, that's not the one, but that's another. That one actually did look like that. That, no, I'm, I'm actually, it was the snowy trees, maybe, um, like snowy pines or conifers against the wall. Uh, it's Mm -hmm. near the beginning of another day, not wasted. Anyway, um, the question I suppose is, do you visualize this ahead of time? Do you play an experiment when you're back and. Also, you've written, this is more where Matt was getting at uh, before his question. You've written in defense of photography departing reality, but your photographs still feel intimately connected to it. And is there a reason why or like, uh, actually, how do you throw that, that line? That, that is the reason because I want to express a real experience that I've had. Uh, so yeah, if I depart too far from it, yeah, I might be able to create some good eye candy, but it won't be reflective of my experience. And when you said, you know, it reminded you of what these places feel, I mean, for me, that's a, as big a compliment as, as you could have paid me uh, because that's really my goal. I think the, the photographic medium itself is not does not impose realism. You know, even if you're a complete purist, you can still depart from reality. Uh, And that's been something of a pet peeve for me. And and that's something that's been holding photography as an art form back for for a lot of years, uh, is just that uh, almost militaristic adherence to only mimetic. uh, And, you know, mimetic representation is absolutely an incredibly important use for photography. But photography can be so much more than that. You know, as long as you're, as long as your viewers understand what it is that you're doing. So if you look at my artist statement, if you read my writings, in all of it, I say, you know, don't don't think of it as something that you would have seen yourself. Don't think of it as, as direct mimetic representation of what you would have seen. But since you actually know these places and since you understand the, the processing techniques, then you also know that the departure is not extreme. Uh, I mean, I want to retain the essence of that experience and just, you know, use place emphasis in certain places, maybe make some hues a little more appealing, more attractive, uh, but not not completely depart from from the reality of it, because to me, the reality of it is what the photograph is about. Well, it's my emotional response to the reality of it. Um, And to me, that's that's as much of a truth as anything else. You know, that might be a metaphorical truth and not a literal truth, Uh, but that is what I wish to do in my work. Uh, and that holds true in color and in black and white. I mean, they're, they're, you can depart from from holistic views quite significantly and still retain the feel of of the scene, the feel of what it was like to be there, to experience it, to notice it, to discover it. Uh, and yes, yeah, so I try to walk that that fine line. And for me, for a lot of years, that that's really been what I was after is is trying to find ways where you know, like you said, the processing doesn't look gaudy, where it doesn't just, oh my God, this is so, you know. But you're still putting your imprint on it. For sure, yeah. I still want to personalize it, but I don't want to give you a complete fantasy. Uh, But, you know, it's something that would help you. 
if you, I mean, you mentioned earlier the gorilla experiment and people not noticing the red splotches on your photos. And I feel like if I didn't try to analyze any of them, I would never think anything was wrong. But if I look at them closely, I mean, sometimes you can see things that would hit you right in the face, you know, but you don't see them because you see it through that to whatever you're trying to convey. And I think that's, that's impressive. I mean, people don't talk about your processing, but it's so important. Maybe I should mention that's actually been a really interesting transition throughout my career as a photographer, as much as it is a career, is I know when I was starting to consider doing it professionally, I I actually talked to a few professionals and, um, you know, I, that was about the time when, you know, the original NPN was starting and uh, every professional that I talked to pretty much said photographers don't buy other photographers work. So, you, you know, you got to make stock work, you got to make advertising work, you got to make commercial work. That's how you make money in photography. And I thought I buy other photographers work. I want to create, I want to create photographs for photographers. Uh, and nobody thought that that was a viable market. And look today, the main audience for photography is other photographers. And so the fact that you can look at a photograph and you understand the medium and you understand the technology and and you even know some of the the subjects, uh, I I think that that kind of raises the ante because I'm not trying to to tell you a story that's not truth. I know that you know what it looked like. I know that you know what I've done to it, but I want that to be tasteful. I want that to be artistic. I want that to be expressive and not just, you know, you put the it in more Photoshop, you can filter yeah. and, and you have an attractive photograph. Yeah. Well, the more knowledgeable your, your audience is about the subject or about right. photography or processing or any of it, the harder they are right. to fool and to please. So yeah, right. I think and, and, being you know, a photographer's photographer is a good thing. I, I think so too. And, and I enjoy it very much. And I, I'll make a statement that might, you know, might uh, rile some people up, but uh, photography has been stagnant for a very, very long time. I think it's time for photography to evolve. If you look at other artistic media, all the revolutions, all the movements that have happened, all the different philosophies that came, you know, photography is kind of stuck in, in realism and romanticism that's, you know, like a hundred plus year old uh, aesthetics of art uh, and has just not moved. And in that sense, you know, some of the, some of the success of, you know, straight photography and, and you know, and the Ansel Adams aesthetic has obviously been really good for photography in a lot of ways, but it has also held photography back because people started believing that this is the one and only true use, only one valid use for photography. And so for me, part of my struggle as an artist is is to try to push that envelope. It's like, well, photography can be other things too. Certainly it can be all those things that are good and wonderful, but it can be all these other things too. And it's very important to me as, as a photographic artist to help educate the audience of photography, that there's other ways to use photography, that you can use photography creatively and expressively, you know, without going into fantasy worlds. Uh, not not that that's necessarily a bad thing to do if that's what you're doing and your audience know that that's what you're doing. Uh, and so walking that line, you know, trying to find out that that aesthetic, try, trying to define a, a, a different way of expressing things photographically, a different way of channeling real experiences into photograph beyond just, you know, here's exactly what you would have seen if you stood there. Photography makes all that uh, even in even in the most conservative use of the tools, you can still do very creative and expressive things. Yeah, I agree with all that. Uh, I, I think this is a good segue for one of my questions, Alex, and it's kind of for both of you. Uh, and I think it relates to what Kai was talking about in terms of the stagnation of photography, especially nature and landscape photography. Uh, 
you know, you both seem to have mostly abandoned the grand landscape, you know, perfectly lit wide vistas with beautifully composed foregrounds. What significance, if any, do you give to that style of work? And is there a future in it? Uh, well, uh, going back to AI, now that AI can do that as, as well as any photographer can do with, with a real subject, then I don't know. See, for me, that I think that's one of the arguably good things about AI is I think once AI can do that better than photographers and humans can do it, then maybe human beings will realize that there are things that they can do that AI can't and creativity is at the top of that list. AI can't be Yeah, created. I just um, don't feel like AI will ever reach the depths of creativity that like say you have, for example, in some of your more creative compositions. Well, like I don't know, maybe it will at some point, but I think for me, it, it's just, it's all about, it's, it's not really about the type of photographs that I produce. It's about my inner experience as I work and it's about the life that I want to live, that photography dovetails into. Photography is a part of it. Um, and none of that has anything to do with, with technology. The technology just enables me to do it. But I think of photography as, as an aspect of, of who I am, of how I conduct myself in the world, of how I perceive things, of how I express things. Uh, and I don't, you know, the fact that AI can create a prettier picture, I don't really care because AI can't give me that experience. AI can't give me that life, right? For me, the life is to be standing out there in this incredible place and just, you know, feeling this deep, reverence for, for where I am and for the beauty around me and then, you know, feeling myself, you know, just this tiny little insect in, in the big cosmos. For me, those are experiences that have nothing at all to do, not even with photography. Photography is just a conduit for that for me. And so you asked about the epic landscape. I, I, I don't think it's necessarily having to do with epic landscape specifically, but I think any, any kind of uh, aesthetic that can be reduced to templates, uh, AI will be able to do better, A. And B, if you're concerned with creativity and expression, which are subjective and personal things, then the more you stick to templates, the less personal your work is. And so for me, breaking away from that and finding new ways of arranging things and expressing things visually gives me a much broader field to insert myself into the process where it's not just, you know, slap on the, the wide angle lens and get there, you know, just a little before sunrise and have a nice foreground and you're done. Uh, it, it's more about being immersed and engaged in the creation of the photograph of arranging it in, in new novel ways. So, yeah. Yeah. You touched on something that I've been thinking a lot about lately in terms of the grand scenic kind of classic landscape photograph. And that is like, I feel like the, the longer they do engage in landscape photography, the easier it is to kind of accomplish those images. Um, and the harder it becomes to make one that is hard to do. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's this weird paradigm where, you know, I'm in the middle of judging, prejudging our natural landscape photography awards, and we have a grand scenic category. And I think well, it's kind of a, it's like almost like a dying art form to, to make a, a really compelling grand landscape photograph that's not based on a very specific location or a template like you're discussing. And I feel like that's where it becomes, it's just very hard to stay engaged in that type of work as a photographer when your goal is personal expression. So, yeah. Well, 
So, so one way to think about it is when you look at a photograph that's really impressive, that's really meaningful, ask yourself how much of that impression, how much of that meaning comes from the subject versus the creative mind of the photographer. Mm. And yeah, you can create epic landscapes that are just spectacular and stunning and, and awe-inspiring. But if all of those impressions come from qualities of the subject uh, and not from your own creative mind, then for me, it's just not as, as, as a creator, it's just not as satisfying to make. I think that makes sense. Um, it's hard to make a personally expressive grand landscape image. I feel like I don't know, Alex. You, well, I think. You, yeah, go ahead. Uh, just well, first of all, about the AI thing. I think that the issue with it for me is that the way it exists now is it's just amalgamations of everything else that's out there. So clearly, it's it's almost the opposite of what someone like Guy is trying to do with his photography. Like you, you shy away from anything common or well trod so if and if you feed ai's now at least from the limited amount that i've seen um, on social media if you feed them prompts regarding landscape photography they kind of look like an instagram feed because it's what most people do and it's just pulling from all of that and making an amalgamation of all that so those images were already kind of devoid of the artist's unique stamp or personalization and then it's becoming even less so and that's sort of that's what i don't like about grand landscapes for me anyway is that i can't seem to make many of them or at least i haven't made many of them in the last several years or at all that that really look like me at a glance they that aren't just i mean i don't want my photography to just be about the location in that that is the photograph. And it seems like that's the mindset out there is that, oh, you get to this location, you do all your planning to be in this spot and that's the photo. And there's nothing about actually composing the photo or arranging the elements or being creative. It's just about and just, and just, being there. And just to go back to, to my previous point is it's not, it's not about the, the ultimate appeal of the photograph to other people. It's about my experience as an artist, which is diminished when I don't have this really deep engagement in, in creating and molding that photograph to be what I want. I will, I will, I will counter that for just a moment because I, I, I love grand landscapes, but I also love intimates. I I mean, I love everything. I'm just, I'm, I'm in nature and I'm a nerd. I'm like, Oh, look at that. Look at that. But, uh, you know, I feel like, there is something personally connective, at least for me, about, you know, some of the work that I engage in, which is like, I climb to the top of a high mountain and I see some fascinating natural phenomenon in the distance. And I'm like, oh, I better get on my telephoto lens. I want to capture this in an interesting way. And yeah, I mean, it might not be as personally expressive as perhaps some of the work that I've seen both of you produce. But for me, it feels personally expressive because it's, it's wrapped up in this, you know, my my journey in photography and the things that I'm engaged in, in nature and all those things. So I think I think there's a place for it, but it is to my earlier point. I think it's just much more difficult to achieve that kind of higher bar of creativity. Yeah, I agree with that, and I I mean I wouldn't say that it's impossible. And of course, you know, I spend a lot of times out in those places. I'm awed when I see something like that <laughs> happening before my eyes. It's just that over the years, I kind of lost the motivation to reach for the camera when that happens i don't even carry a, an ultra wide lens with me because well, it's I, like a 
It's like a weight's been weight. lifted when you're able to actually watch sunsets right. and not pull out the camera. Absolutely, that's, because I'm, that's I'm a bur- I, you know, maybe, maybe it's with experience, but I've, I've gotten confident enough that I know that there are personally expensive images out there to be had. And I don't necessarily need to, you know, nail that one shot just because I happen to be there and it looks great. So I can enjoy that experience for what it is and I can enjoy the creative experience for what it is. And I don't necessarily have to constantly feel compelled to, you know, if there's something pretty in my environment, I have to point a camera at it. I I feel sometimes I have pulled out the camera still in these situations where I know that the image isn't going to be that expressive or that I probably won't even use it. And I just, all I see when I look at it is where I was standing. Like the image inherently breaks the fourth wall for me. And it's so obvious in how it was made and the circumstances under which it was made. It's like what anyone would see if they were there, which is why I don't find it that interesting. And I'm not talking about other people's work. I'm talking about when I do it myself, I shoot it on occasion. I just don't release those photos because they don't do anything for me afterwards. Yeah, I, I just realized that even if I took the time to photograph it, I will never use that photograph. I will never go. I mean, uh, there are so many other photographs that I would prefer to show and to work on than that. So it, it doesn't really buy me anything to have it in my file. And there's one other thing about grand landscapes that um, I think is objectively true, and that's that you are making something big you're, you're minimizing something grand, like you're trying to fit it into your frame and, and it's probably viewed on a phone or, or even yeah. this size print, it can't compare to the real experience, right? Versus you see some tiny overlooked detail and you are glorifying that you're making that bigger. You're making that more important by comparison. Like you're not minimizing the subject. You're actually yeah. giving it more weight. I think that, you know. These grand experiences for me, they're they're multidimensional, right? There's there's all kinds of different sensations and emotions and a lot of things that are involved in that experience and trying to reduce it to just a visual that will try to capture all that, that enormity, that grandeur, it's not possible to do that. And I think just attempting to do that distracts you from really absorbing the, the majesty of it. I think video well, is a lot more capable of it, actually. Just, you know, the movement. The way when you're in a huge landscape and you move and then nothing yeah. out there moves because it's so big, you know, you change mm-hmm. your perspective and everything seems static. You can't convey that photograph. Well, I, I have a perfect segue to this. Um, and I know you've talked a lot about it in your book, Sky, but, um, you know, for a lot of uh, more traditional landscape photographers, that kind of classic big scene is what you know, pays the bills in terms of, you know, workshops or attracting workshops or selling prints or whatever. And I don't know, I've, sometimes I feel like some people are doing that just because they have to. Maybe, I don't know, not putting words in other people's mouth, but I'm curious though, for you, do you feel like, is the goal of making a living through photography using capitalist technique techniques, anathema to creativity? Uh- Maybe not uh, as explicitly as that, uh, but I think for me, uh, it took me a long time to get comfortable with the idea that I could make enough without having to do that. Uh, So, you know, people talk about leaving money on the table. I'm okay leaving money on the table. I'm not okay leaving life experiences on the table just to make extra money that I 
can do without, you know, not that I'm wealthy by any stretch of the imagination, but I get, I get to live a life and to do work that is extremely satisfying to me. Uh, and it's not that other kinds of work is less worthy. It's just the kind of work that makes my life meaningful. And the fact that I can focus on that type of work and the fact that I can then parlay that into writing too, which is my greatest source of income, uh, it helps me find this balance that's a much better fit for my personality. I hate rushing. I hate, you know, feeling forced to do things. I like to be, I like to feel that reverence, that inspiration and to work out of that. Uh, and as long as that is sufficient for me to earn, you know, the modest income that I, that I need, you know, I, I don't have a family to support. It's just my wife and me. We live in an area with a pretty low cost of living. Uh, and I don't have lavish needs. I spend most of my time outside. Uh, and so I don't really need to make that much. I, I don't really mind leaving money on the table that if I wanted to get it, I would need to work twice as hard and do things that are not as personally meaningful to me. If it got to a point where, excuse me, where I just, where I couldn't pay my bills without doing that kind of work, then yeah, I probably would. Uh, but I, you know, for, for a long time, I was really paranoid about, well, if I don't do that, you know, I might miss a sale, I, I might, you know, miss a client, I might miss something. But I realized after a while of doing it that things, things, my creativity is enough for me that I can rely on it to give me enough material to make a living uh, without having to do things that are, are not as interesting or not as inspiring to me. What about for you, Alex? Well, I think that they say that those who can't do teach, and I don't think that, that applies in photography because teaching is what allows me to completely insulate the creation of photographs from the uh, financial aspect of it. I'm not concerned with whether they'll sell prints, you know, because people don't want a moody or abstract photo on their wall. They want like flowers and something that distracts them from their nine to five job. Like they want blue skies. That's, that's fine. But I don't have to worry about what sells because. I mean, as Guy mentioned earlier, he's, he wants to be appealing to other photographers. So do I, number one, because I think they're more discerning about photography. So I'm happier if a photographer is happy image than just the general public, but also because I don't worry about what sells. I just worry about whether people want to learn how to do what I want. Yeah. And, and I will take it a, a step further is my goal is not to appeal to all photographers. I just know that there are enough people who relate to what I do and who like reading what I write and that my philosophy speaks, speaks to and who, you know, get what it is that I'm trying to express, express in my photographs. And, you know, whether it's 50% or 10% or 5% of photographers, it doesn't really matter. I just need to be able to pay my bills at the end of the month and, and be able to do that. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, I feel like that's, that's the next level where you're, you're able to be discerning about who you want to teach, not teach people how to use a camera, but how to be creative. Yeah. So but, but you know, that's important. And, you know, some people just love to do that, right? You, you love teaching people and opening their eyes to, to new possibilities and seeing them discover things. Uh, for me, I, my favorite thing in teaching is when I realize that people are getting the, the creative part of it, where they go off and start doing things on their own, you know, where they start to understand that the ways of thinking and how to, how to analyze a scene and, and how to relate to it personally. And they produce things that I, I couldn't have told them to do. I couldn't have taught them how to do. For me, that's the most rewarding is that I know I've given them the tools, you know, and then they go out and apply them, you know, in their own way. All right, Alex, yeah. it's your turn, buddy. What's that? For a, for for a question. question. Oh, oh yeah, I forgot that was all. 
I was all playing off your question about grand landscapes. Um, well, you read Desert Solitude when you're in Israel, right? Mm-hmm. And you came over to the U.S. I don't know your whole history in the U.S., but how did you end up where you were? Did you look at Moab first? Uh, were you other places uh, in the U.S. first? No, I didn't. What called you about the just, spot you're at? Yeah, I just wrote about this for On Landscape that it hasn't public, published yet, but that's been the topic of the, the subject. Uh, Tim asked me to cover Abbey. Um, yeah, it, it was actually really interesting. Uh, Desert Solitaire, Ed, Edward Abbey's book, kind of popped into my solitaire, life. Solitaire, two. Yeah, two two very quenchal uh, periods in my life. Uh, one is when I was in the military and in Israel, military services is mandatory. Um, and we were out on the Golan Heights and I, you know, I was going through my one of my deep depressive episodes and just feeling completely helpless. And, you know, it was going to be days and days before I ever got out of there. Um, and uh, yeah, a truck came in and, you know, they we would bring us books and other things, you know, to keep us keep us uh sane um and so i grabbed that book and uh, i i'm a notorious insomniac so i usually always volunteer for the night shifts that nobody wants you know from 2 a.m to 6 a.m and i was sitting on this guard tower way out in the golan heights you know the, the syrian border was somewhere out there i could see a couple of lights in the distance that was it i was just crickets and nothing and i just read that book and i kept reading it and just the way that he described the landscape, just the way that he related, the, the way that he was mindful to every little thing, you know, the flowers of the cliff rows. And, and then that was interjected also with a lot of a lot of cynicism and wit, which, you know, it wasn't just this flowery uh, writing. Right, like the, so I really related the to rattlesnake yeah. under the tank. And it's, it's yeah, such a yeah, good book. Just, yeah. 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 So for me, I, I realized then, you know, I don't even know if I was even 20 at the time. Uh, I just realized, you know, I could I could go through life. I don't I don't need this grand purpose in life. I don't need to to aim, you know, for this grand career or whatever. It's just I want to live a life where I can have experiences like that. And that seemed very achievable to me. And that really helped me out of that really miserable episode. Uh, but then shortly after that, I forgot about the book and I, I'd never expected to actually see these places, you know, with my own eyes, which is kind of ironic because now I've been living here for longer than I've been alive at the time. Right. Um, <clears throat> so I uh, then I uh, when when the Internet became a public service, there was a huge demand for tech people. And I just happened to have had the, the, right, uh, the right skills. And so I got a job in Silicon Valley in California. Uh, and at first I came in just to do a contract to help a small company, you know, get their office up and running. Um, and so I finished doing that uh, and they were happy with me and they made me an offer, you know, to stay. So I stayed a little bit longer. Eventually I stayed and <laughs> didn't go back. But I remember one day going to a used bookstore. That's something I used to love to do. There's not many of them around now. And so I went into the bookstore and I started looking for books on photography, obviously. And uh, I found a book called Desert Images. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's a gigantic book uh, with writing by Ed Abbey with like a, you know, 30, 30 point font, uh, writing by Ed Abbey and photographs by David Munch. And most of it was um, of, of uh, the Mojave Desert, but there were some images there from the Colorado Plateau. And I suddenly remember when I read Desert Solitaire and all these things suddenly came together for me. And I, I asked the, the person at the store, you know, if they have more books. And I started reading a little more Abbey. And I had some time. So I just took the car and I drove from California. It's like, I want to see these places that I read about. You know, that seemed like it might be the only opportunity I'd ever get. And that was another one of those periods where I just was at a low point in my life. I just finished, you know, a big job. I had no idea what I wanted to do next, what I could do next. I didn't want to go back to Israel. 
And I decided to just go there and see these landscapes and, and suddenly everything just connected for me. It was, it was a, a feeling that I've never had anywhere else. I remember I pulled over by the side of the road. I think it was highway 95, kind of in the middle of nowhere, you know, just, just surrounded by this gorgeous desert. And at the time, you know, there were like two cars a day on that road. And I pulled over and I stepped out and it was quiet and just the smell of the junipers and the sagebrush. And I was just thinking, it felt like I knew that place. It's like, I felt like I knew the way to places that I've never been to in my life. It just, I just connected. I just responded to the place in a way that I never have before. I just felt at home. And that kind of sparked my interest in that. Uh, yeah. So I, I did a few more gigs in California. You know, at the time it was, if you're a good techie, you could pretty much do whatever you wanted. You could quit your job in the morning, have a better one by the middle of the day. So <laughs> I got to a point where, uh, yeah, I was, I was contracting at a pretty high rate. I worked three months out of the year and I just went exploring the rest of the time and you know at first i visited the national parks obviously i got to see all the but you know like i said I, I get bored quickly i was getting hungry and i said wow there, there's millions and millions of acres here of all kinds of great stuff some of it with no trail some of it with these two track roads that go into who knows where and i just got addicted to just going into places without any plans or expectation trying to get myself into all these canyons and trying to you know trying to hike from point a to point b and not even knowing what's in between and and that and that connection with the land was just kind of born out of it and so at one point um, my wife and i had you know this serious conversation at that point uh, i was already married and we wanted to do something more meaningful with our with our lives and we decided okay well let's see if we can move closer to nature and we were looking at a couple of possibilities it just so happened that i was able to get a tech job in salt lake city she was able to get into law school at the university of utah which she wanted to get a law degree and so we moved to utah and at first we lived in salt lake for a few years and then you know again the, this constant journey of getting closer and closer to to the desert to the wilderness and i started spending more and more time outside and by then i already was starting to build a reputation as a photographer and then one day it was just it was just clear to me that this is it i just can't go to the office in the morning anymore i just have to be out there and i got to figure out how to make this work um so yeah that that's the story in a nutshell i um sorry alex guys as you were talking about that experience um it just brought me right back to an experience i had just a month ago I was um, camping down by a Mexican at, and um, my buddy Kane and I decided to drive up to Cedar Mesa, which we didn't end up doing. Well, we didn't end up staying up there because it rained all day up there and it was just mud. But we drove maybe a half mile, a mile on this road, and um, we were getting stuck in the mud and stuff and got out to inspect our vehicles. And I was just overwhelmed with the smell junipers that's it was so amazing i was like i don't want to go i don't want to leave was it after a rain (laughs) oh just a huge rainstorm i mean it was was, yeah the sage it's just crazy oh my gosh it was it's visceral i mean it just cuts right every time i smell that i feel like i remember what life is about you know yeah yeah it's it's amazing yeah yeah, so for me, that was, you know, the closest that, uh, you know, a, a rational, a super rational person will ever get to a spiritual experience. I figured that that was as close as I would get to a, a religious experience. And I, I was just in complete awe. And it was just obvious to me that I got to spend as much of my remaining living moments in this place as I could. Well, how is, I, I have to say you're probably lucky in the grand scheme of things that you were with Sarah, that she's willing to do that. Right. I mean, because you were both in major cities to find someone that's willing to move to 
town of that size. Yeah, no doubt. I, I, I would not. I would not be we're doing this right now if it wasn't for her. Yeah, for sure. You didn't have to trade relationship for for your solitude. At both. No, and I mean, I, I won't tell you that it was a bed of roses 100% of the time. I mean, obviously, it's going to be friction. It's going to be adjustment. Yeah. Yeah. Well. You know, that that's the nature of any relationship. But eventually, I think, I, I mean, we, we both absolutely love where we live. And we, we want to spend the rest of our days here. That's awesome. I, I can see why. I mean, having been all over Utah, there's like the circle of busy national parks. And then it's still like, it's like you picked the perfect place. I don't know when you chose it. The 90s, probably? Uh, yeah, it was uh, kind of yeah, 90s. Yeah, it was actually interesting. Uh, you know, uh, my, my dad came here for a visit while we we're still living in California. And so I drove him around Utah. Uh, and I remember the first time I came up over Boulder Mountain on Highway 12, uh, it was just one of these perfect afternoon, you know, with the glowing light out down into that incredible view. And I remember telling him right there, so if I ever get the opportunity to choose where I want to live in the world, it would be right here. And uh, yeah, it took, it took a while, but uh, that always stuck with me. It was just that, that impression. It was just, this is paradise. This is the most It's certainly a unique place, but you also did great in choosing a place that has remained somewhat yeah. uh, calm, you know, I mean, in comparison yeah. to the rest of Utah and the rest of the national parks. Yeah, it's, it's Amazing. very remote. There's no airport anywhere near here. Uh, it takes a lot of effort to get here. There's not enough water to build a big city. So it's, uh, it was able to maintain its, its wildness. Are you still exploring as in like looking on topos and finding new canyons and overloads to head to, or do you feel like you kind of have a circuit of your favorite spots now? Well, I, I, you know, over the years, I, I just don't need, really need, I very rarely need maps anymore. Right now, you know, I just drop me anywhere in the desert as long as I can see the skyline and figure out what the formations are. I know where I am, you know, I know the area well enough. Uh, and I know that gen generally where the big obstacles are, where the big canyons are, where the roads are. So I can find my way pretty well. Um, yeah, I think I think the balance has definitely shifted. There are some places that I just love going back to over and over again, but I, I rarely go to the exact same spots. You know, I, I like to explore around and I like to set up camp and just stay there for, for a week or, or longer and just, just go for walks, you know, not necessarily go to this specific canyon or that specific arch or that specific attraction. Yeah. It's just, you know, hey, I haven't been there yet. Let's go see what's over there. Yeah, well, it doesn't strike me as... <laughs> I, I wouldn't guess that you were planning all this out, like with an exact no, I, I'm, I'm the destination in mind. Right yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I think that's a, that sounds that's more my approach nowadays to put yourself in a beautiful place and be curious. Yeah. And I love walking, you know, I can easily walk eight, 10 miles in a day and, you know, come back all exhausted, exhausted and sore and, you know, just, just go in a random direction. I don't need the trail. I just, I just go. And, yeah. There's something Do you backpack or? Uh, not as like much as I used hike, to. Well, car camp. Yeah, I'll backpack maybe once or twice a year now. And usually when the weather is nice and I don't need a tent, so I can, you know, sleep in an alcove or something. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so I, I don't backpack as much as I used to. But, uh, you know, at least a couple of times a year I do. But, yeah, I, I do really long. I try to find these really remote camps where I can just walk for miles in some random direction and see things that, you know, there are no trails to go. That area seems like the best I've ever encountered for where I'd want a cowboy camp but I just still have that fear of scorpions. <laughs> oh, there's a lot of scorpions here. No, I, you know, yes. for all the years I've lived here, I've only gotten bit twice. And yeah. <laughs> only two scorpion bites. Okay. That's... Yeah, actually, what? Well, yeah. 
just a couple of years ago, I got bit in Death Valley. It was really weird. I was there with Michael Gordon. We were, you know, on one of the nights after our workshop, we were just sitting out in the desert chit-chatting, you know, just sitting in the dirt. And I was just fiddling around with some rocks and suddenly just pow. <laughs> oh, well, that's twice too many, guy. Yes. <laughs> Being stung twice too, is too twice too many. many. Yeah. Nah. All right. Well, I have an, I have another another question I wanted to ask you guys. Um, another thing I've been loving about your your book is the concept of equivalence, and you talk a lot about it in your book. And um, I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about what it is, and also how photographers can try to incorporate this idea into their own work. Okay. Well, uh, let me just uh, do a little quick preamble here. Is the the idea of equivalence came from Alfred Siegelitz and I think one of the one of the challenges in photography is you have you have this mythical figure of Ansel Adams that everybody knows, and nobody knows of anybody else. But you know, if you look at American photography, there's Ansel Adams who's a giant, and there's Alfred Stieglitz who's a ten times bigger giant, <laughs> and a lot of people don't even know about him. You know, if it wasn't for if you took Ansel Adams out of the history of photography, landscape photography would still exist. You know. He, he definitely contributed a lot to it. But if you took Alfred Stieglitz out of the history of American photography, ph photography would be extremely different. He was a, a true pioneer. Um, so he uh, he came up with this idea of equivalence. It's actually a funny story. He he had an exhibit in New York. He lived in New York City at a gallery there. He exhibited uh, portraits that he did of some famous New Yorkers. Um, <clears throat> and then one of the one of the reporters that went to the to the show. Uh, wrote a review of the show where he said, you know, that the portraits had, you know, he, he speculated that Stieglitz somehow hypnotized them and that's why they look so attractive. And Stieglitz had a, a big ego and a big temper. So he was, he was really upset about that. He, he, he didn't want people to think that he hypnotized people to get the photographs he wanted to be because he's a great photographer. Um, and so I thought, yeah, but still, you know, what, what is it about these photographs that makes them so appealing? Why is it that they communicate more than just what somebody or something looked like? And he said, you know, there is a way in photography to create an equivalence between the experience of the photographer and the experience of the viewer looking at the photograph. And in order to prove that, he said, I'm going to use the most benign subject matter that there is. And he picked clouds. So he created a portfolio of just photographs of clouds and Frankly, if you look at them, they're not all that interesting. <laughs> but uh, but he wanted to prove that just by photographing clouds, he could express something, some feelings uh, that were not related to the subject, that were of his own making just by way of his composition, his processing, his way of printing it. Um, and, you know, he was he was an idea guy, so he came up with this idea, and then he kind of abandoned it. He didn't really do much with it, but other photographers picked up on it. And uh, one of the one of the photographers that, that uh, Ansel Adams picked up on it, too, but one of the photographers that did the most with it is probably Minor White. Uh, and Minor White really embraced this idea of, of equivalence, and he created these really strange abstracts just trying to express things that where you don't even recognize what the subject is and trying to express things with them. Uh, so this idea that photographs can express things that are not related to the subject, that are not related to the things that are literally in the frame, that was the big breakthrough. Uh, and that's what Minor White set out to prove. And a lot of other photographers have picked up on that, 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 I, that. That's the quality that makes photography expressive is equivalence, is being able to convey emotions and not just appearances. Earlier, you mentioned, you alluded to like the scientific uh, things that have been proven about what what conveys what, you know, like different colors and all that. Do you, 
you said that in the field, you're just training your intuition, but when you're processing and you have a lot more time to be analytical, do you consider that like what it might convey, or do you only think about how you uh, perceive? I the do, but yeah, I do, but not usually not in real time. So what happens is I will do it a certain way that that feels quote unquote right to me at the time. And then I might read about something or I might look at some other photographs and I might, you know, the light bulb goes off and it's like, yeah, I should go back to that photograph and try it a little bit differently and see if that works better. So yeah, for me, it's just this constant process of refinement until it becomes intuitive. Well, I know that you're huge fan of studying kind of the giants from our past. And I appreciate that a lot because we have a lot, so much we can learn from that. And we talked about it uh, extensively on episode 200 with Michael Gordon and, and you. But mm-hmm. um, I was curious, um, and this is a question for both of you, and I want you to answer it first, Guy. Uh, which modern day photographers do you, you admire? Uh well, I mean, you kind of already mentioned, I, I've mentioned Michael Gordon uh, for, for multiple reasons. First of all, he's, he's one of my oldest and best friends. So we, we grew up as photographers, both of us as serious photographers. And so a lot of our interactions are about photography and, and these topics that we're talking about now. And that for me has really helped me shape my own views. And, you know, every time one of us would learn something new, we, we'd talk about this, we would teach workshops together and teach different things in different ways. Uh, and it's really, to me, is to both, or, you know, to Michael's credit is that we evolved in very different directions, right? Our work does not look similar at all. He, he's doing things that are very different for me. And so for me, Michael was a, a huge uh, inspiration sounding board. Um, so, I, so I would definitely put him at the top of that list. Uh, but uh, the other thing is I think that there's a certain, uh, I would call tribalism among photographers that I think is not necessarily a good thing where it's like, if I'm a landscape photographer, then I'm only, I only care about landscape photography and I only look at other landscape photographers and anything that I don't do myself is not interesting to me. But I think there are so many different fascinating genres of photography not necessarily things that I want to do or things that, you know, but, but things that I love looking at. So if you look at the uh, work of people like uh, Gregory Crutzen, for example, uh, you know, he, he, he creates, he manufactures these incredibly bizarre scenes that just make spectacular photographs of them. And to me, that that's just a form of art that I, I can't do myself and I don't want to do myself, but as, as a form of photographic art, it's incredible. Uh, and, um, you know, people like uh, Edward Bertinsky, very similar, you know, he would photograph these industrial scenes that, you know, for me, this would be like, I don't even want to be there, right, let alone photograph it. But I look at his photographs and they're so expressive and they're so beautiful and then they're so there's a lot of meaning in them because you realize that the actual subject matter is pretty depressing, but yet the photograph is so beautiful that it just hits you. Um, uh, think of people like maybe Nick Brandt. You know, he makes these beautiful black and white photographs of, of wildlife that are gorgeous. Um, yeah, that's just a really long list. I always struggle with these questions because I worry that yeah. I'm going to leave someone out that I'm <laughs> later. I'm just going to slap my forehead. And it's like it's wow, a tough wait, question. Um, yeah, but I, I think we were we live in a very rich time to, to be a photographer and to be interested in photography. And I would urge people to look beyond just their own genre, you know, just because you're a landscape photographer, a wildlife photographer, doesn't mean that you can't enjoy, you know, something like Crudson's work, right? Because the, the photographic art of it is just spectacular. Alex? That, well, I just wanted to ask Guy real quick, because you have written about kind of expanding your creative 
library. I don't know if you phrased it that way, but just by gaining inspiration from other things outside of the visual arts, even, um, like, do you ever have a connection between say music and your photography? Like, do absolutely. Yes. Does yeah, it inspire? Music, music is one. Yeah. Music to me is, is, it's like a, you know, just cuts through the barrier. It just instantly puts you in this, in this mindset. Yeah, it's, and depending it's hot wired. Yes. Yeah, very often I would listen to music and, you know, when I listen, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm notorious insomniac. So sometimes I'll be out in the desert and I'll just be sitting out completely pitch black with the headphones on, cranking the volume up, you know, some beautiful piece of music and I have tears in my eyes, right? I love these experiences and for sure that drives my inspiration. All right. Well, Matt had a question. So, um, Guy, obviously one of my top photographers, just his work connects with me, uh, on every level. I love like Charles Kramer, Christopher Burkett, Bill Neal. Uh, I feel like most of my favorite photographers have been added a few decades. I, I just think that I tend to a more classic approach, at least to composition, um, so those are, I, I mean, the list is way too long. I don't, yeah, I don't <laughs> yeah. want to get into naming too many people and then leaving people out, but. Yeah, well, you know, uh, here comes uh, the head slapping thing, right? I could have mentioned those same names too. And I've, I feel extremely fortunate, actually, it's because our medium is so young. I've actually gotten to meet some of these people in person and interact yeah, with them in person. Yeah. I mean, just think of it, that will be like for a classical musician to say, hey, I actually exchanged some email with Mozart. It's like. Well, we actually yeah. get to do that because yeah. the Mozarts of photography are, a lot of them are still alive today. Yeah, I got to say, yeah. Alex, it was, um, it was actually a beautiful thing when we were out at Yosemite watching you um, just engage with William Neal, like when I heard heroes, I could just see the enthusiasm yeah. in your eyes. I'm like sure you were just, a, a you're, you're, my... yeah, you were just in love, man. It was awesome to see that. Well, to be able to teach with him, I mean, like, and then he talks about teaching with Ansel Adams back in the day. It's like, I feel like that's what's happening for me right now. <laughs> getting yeah. to, getting to speak to people like David Guy and Charles was there too, actually, Charles Kramer. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Alex, I think it's your turn. <laughs> what were we just, I had another follow-up on, uh, Equip no, we, and people that, sorry, we, um, it, so. that are inspiring to us. Oh yeah. So, you know, Cole Thompson's photographic celibacy guy, are you familiar? Uh, I do. I have actually written, uh, I, I, I hold a very different position. On that. That's what I was, I figured that you did because I wouldn't imagine that looking at anyone else's work would taint your own vision, but I wanted to know what you thought about that. No, I mean, for me, I'm a photographer because I love photography. It just seems uh, counterintuitive for me to deny myself that, uh, you know, I, I have discipline and the creativity to make my own work and I, I don't need to copy anybody. I, I don't feel I, I would be disappointed in myself if I did. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so that that part of it, uh, I, I definitely do not practice nor recommend uh, that that kind of celibacy. I, I think that there's so much cross pollination, not just within photography, but every other art that the more of it you see, the better you get. Uh, and, and the more viable it is, you know, you to learn about, and, and obviously you learn things that you might be able to apply in your own work. <clears throat> but, um, well, I had another point. Um, okay. It'll come to me. I'm sorry. All right. <laughs> it just flew my mind. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I, I think, think that... I remember a uh, guy, I think when we talked about it last time, 
you were like, yeah, it's easy. Just don't do that. Just don't copy other yeah, people and you'll be, just don't do it. <laughs> yeah, I think that, well, was Michael, that, that was what Michael likes to tell people. But uh, <laughs> uh, okay, so I, I remember what my point is, is, is I think, you know, maybe it's just my, my own temperament, but I, I think that artists should carry themselves with a lot of self-confidence, even if they're not self-confident, actually, if they're not self-confident, because if you're going to do something creative, you're doing something new. You, you kind of accept that some people might not get it. Some people might not be able to relate to it. You have to have that confidence or at least present that confidence to the world. Say, you know, this is what I do. This is what I did. If you get it, doesn't matter. If you don't get it, doesn't matter. Maybe I might not like it later. But it's very important that you have the confidence to try it and to give it a shot and to see if something clicks because that's the only way that, that the art evolves. You know, art doesn't evolve by, by repeating the, the same template. It's all over and over. So I think you have to, even if you're not innately self-confident, to just find a way to, to ignore judgment and to go out and do things that call out to you, you know, even if it's something nobody else has done, even if it's something that you know is going to piss off some people, you just have to do it. Uh, that's the only way to make progress. I love it. Makes well, perfect I, sense. I have another question for you, Guy. Um, you make it very clear in your book that you are against photography competitions. However, yeah. however, I'm curious then, should landscape photographers compete for the limited exhibition spaces that are available? That's a, that's a tough question. I mean, I guess it depends on how much your, your livelihood or anything else or, you know, and for some people it's a social activity which they enjoy. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, competition and there's, there's a lot of good writing about that too. Competition breeds conformity because you're trying to please the judges, the judges try to please the, the public that picked them to be judges. And it's just a, this closed circuit. Uh, if you want to do something truly innovative, you have to shut out all judgments of other people, at least when you're creating. Um, and so, and also for me, I mean, I, I, I don't mean, I, I know you guys are both involved in, in competitions and I know that a lot of people really enjoy competitions, you know, for a lot of different <laughs> reasons. I just think in the very narrow scope of if you want to be a creative and expressive photographer, you have to find a way to, to turn that off, to turn other people's judgment off completely. Um, actually, that was a great, that was a great quote from that. Give me a second, I'll find it. Uh, Bertrand Russell said something about that. Um, well, I mean, while you're looking for it, I think what's interesting, in my experience, the images that tend to do the best are the ones that aren't trying to conform, at least in the competitions that I admire. Yeah. I do think there are like competitions. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, I think there are competitions that cater to conformity and, you know, like, kind of, pop and wow and like oh my god that's in, like in your face amazing but one of the reasons why i created the competition i'm in charge of nlpa is i wanted to reward photographers who created work that wasn't like that i wanted people to have a platform that rewarded creativity and something that wasn't like in your face amazing and you know like what everyone comes to you know give a million likes on Instagram for so yeah yeah I mean there's no doubt that for some, some people really enjoy it and you know and that that's reason enough to do it I'm just thinking that if you if you really want to find you know your your creative push your creative boundaries as hard as you can you should not try to please other people that that, that 
that damages your motivation. Uh, so let, let me let me read this quote from Bertrand Russell from his uh, book called Proposed Roads to Freedom. He writes, it is impossible for art or any of the higher creative activities to flourish under any system which requires that an artist shall prove his competence to some body of authorities before he is allowed to follow his impulse. Any really great artist is almost sure to be thought incompetent by those among his seniors who would be generally regarded as best qualified to form an opinion. And the mere fact of having to produce work which will please older men is hostile to a free spirit and to the bold innovation. Apart from this difficulty, selection by older men would lead to jealousy and intrigue and backbiting, producing a poisonous atmosphere of underground competition. The only effect of such a plan would be to eliminate the few who now slip through owing to some, unfor to some fortunate accident. It is not by any system, but by freedom alone that art can flourish. And you know, obviously he, he pushes it to, to great extreme, but I think even implicitly, even if you enjoy the competition, you are trying to please other people with your work. Uh, and, you know, if that's if that's the reward that you're after, then certainly competition might be a, a, a good thing for you to do. If you're a competitive person, if you enjoy the, the social aspects of winning or whatever. But if you really want to be able to isolate that voice, if you really want to see if you could make some meaningful co contribution of your own, I mean, th think of the impressionist, for example. Right when the impressionists came on the scene, or even later artists, you know, think of Cezanne, you think of, uh, of Picasso. All of them got horrible, horrible. The the uh, Academy de Bard in, in France, you know, shunned the impressionists. The impressionists were not allowed to present their work in the Paris Salon, which was the the most prestigious art contest. But you know, they stuck to their guns and they changed the world. They created a huge revolution in art. So if you want to aspire for that kind of creativity, which I do. I'm not saying everybody should, but I aspire to that kind of creativity of, I want to see if I can make that kind of contribution. Efficient for me, and you know, I, I don't need that reward of, of approval by other people. I want to be able to push my boundaries and see if something sticks. And even if it sticks after I'm dead, I, I don't care. <laughs> because for me, that, that creative experience is, is what is what makes it. Um, you know, and we mentioned Alfred Stieglitz earlier. If you don't mind, I want to read one more quote. Um, this one is from Paul Strand. So Paul Strand was one of the Alfred Stieglitz's circle. He was one of his closest friends. Um, so Paul Strand talked about uh, Alfred Stieglitz's gallery uh, in New York. It was called 291 based on the, it was at 291 Fifth Avenue. So here's how he describes the gallery. He says, 291 was a place where a particular kind of work was being done. And it was through Steichen, Edward Steichen, really that modern art at the time, Cezanne, Brock, Picasso, Brancusi, come into the photo secession gallery. That was the name of the gallery. Stiglitz was very glad, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Photography as an art was denied, ridiculed, attacked, especially by the academic painters who thought that the camera might take their livelihood away. The acknowledgement of the validity of photography as a new material, as a new way of seeing life through a machine was questioned and fundamentally denied. Well, here were these pictures by the Cubists, which were also looked upon as the work of idiots. I used to hear people at 291 say that some of these painters should be in a lunatic asylum. They should be punished. They shouldn't be allowed to do those things. So, you know, some of the greatest artists, some of the greatest art movement in history were, were just completely shunned and misunderstood and ridiculed in their day. But where would we be now? without those. And for me, that, that's, a, that's a higher bar to aspire to, and, and that, that motivates me more than, than winning awards. Yeah, no, that's fair. I think you're really talking to the root of intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation here. Exactly. Absolutely. Not to yes. put Alex on the spot, but I know, when was it, like 2016, Alex, you won like three competitions in a row or whatever, and 
But I think yeah. if so, I'm if I'm to be fair, like you created that work before that, not with the intention of winning competitions. Well, that's and you're, yeah, and that's you're like, oh, I guess I'll enter my work into these competitions. Oh, and by the way, I, I guess I just won. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that certain competitions, if they, especially if they are rewarding what's what tends to be popular, then it's kind of encouraging that sort of behavior, the extrinsic motivation. But I, I think if you're insulating that the creative process entirely from like the financial gains or the, the social gains to be had, and you're only doing what you want to be doing creatively, then it, I mean, if you can look at it in a way that it doesn't harm you, if you lose and doesn't give you like make you complacent or give you a big head, if you win, um, then then there's not really anything wrong with it. I like the way that NLPA is run though, in particular, because, and that's the only reason I'm a judge on it. Cause I'm, I'm, I have a bad taste in my mouth about competitions in general. Um, despite having one. So but, <laughs> by the way, <laughs> yeah, like that's, what's why I'm in, in involved with NLPA is just because yeah. I think we're giving it the most, um, thorough judging and rewarding more original work than any other competition. And then also about when I entered those, yeah, that work was made before I even planned on entering the competitions. I had never thought about it. I just, I basically saw the entry fees, which were like roughly like $50 per competition, um, as a really high percentage lottery ticket, like betting on myself. And I was like, if, if I win these, then that is X amount of time that I don't have to work and that I'm free to go make more photos. Yeah. That's really the way I looked yeah, at it. Obviously there's, yeah, there's, there's practical. It's more about the, the practical rewards yeah. than the, yeah. than the accolades, but. Yeah. And see, for me, I just always feel, well, what do I have to gain by doing that? And, and I'm sure some of the things that are very valuable to some people are, are not as valuable to me. You know, I really don't care to call myself an award-winning photographer. I'm not, and I, I don't really need to. Yeah, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't dare use those words, actually. That's, yeah. that's ridiculous, but it's... <laughs> that is kind of a joke in, in the community, isn't it? Yeah, well, because you have competitions that hand out 500 bronze awards, and then everyone can <laughs> say they're an award-winning photographer. Like, it doesn't mean anything, so... Right, yeah. Anyway, it's funny. All right, it's your turn, Alex. <laughs> I know my my well of questions might be dry. I have, I have one more really meaty one if you want me to jump in. Oh, okay. So I have a small one. So when light is fleeting and you're out there, guy, and something something crazy is happening, not a lot of your photos are portraying such moments or reliant on it. But I have seen some. Are you like frantically? composing because i just can't imagine you doing something like that i can't imagine you running around yeah yeah the way that a lot of people say they do yeah yeah so if if i if i think that i have to rush to get it i'll just yeah yeah, i I don't need it all right yeah Uh, yeah, but sometimes i will already be situated when something is happening and sometimes i can predict that something interesting might be happening so i'll just set myself up so i can very easily do it but uh yeah if something catches me by surprise and i have to scramble <laughs> and I'm going to guess then that you don't search for photographs explicitly and you just kind of carry your camera and 
work on something I would when say there may be just a or? tiny fraction of a percent of situations where I see a photograph, but the conditions are not right for it. And so I might go back to, to redo it, but that's a tiny, tiny fraction of a percent. Can I ask the guy in terms of Alex's first question about running around and being frantic, did you used to do that? No, not really. Huh, interesting. Cause I, no, it's just for me, it, it kills the experience. It's just so. Uh, it's interesting because yeah, I, I, I know, I mean, Alex has seen me do it in the field, like running in a field, like on Red Mountain Pass. But I found, yeah. I, I found for myself over time, I do less and less of it. You know, yeah. the more comfortable you get and the more intuitive you get in terms of like predicting what's yeah. going to happen. Actually, yeah, there's a. I was just going to say, you know, when I was growing up, you know, Galen Rowell was one of the, the big names and that's what he would do. He he would just take off and run like crazy and he would, you know, climb this, you know, that's what I do. foot, <laughs> five, 10 route yeah, just yeah. to get the shot within, you know, three minutes. Uh, but so for me, it was very obvious that that's not how I work. That's not how I want to work. And, you know, Cartier-Bresson talked about decisive moment. I think Cartier-Bresson would have died of boredom if he was photographing. With <laughs> I think, uh, well... Here's my question that, that plays off that. If you find something that intrigues you and you start spending more time, assuming that you do spend a lot of time, at what point do you leave the realm of intuition and you're overanalyzing your composition and it becomes more rigid or does that ever happen to you? Mm, I, I, it probably has happened. It doesn't happen to me anymore. You know, now I, I you know, I, I got to a point where, you know, I've, I've been, learning to, to meditate on the landscape and on what I do. And I get to a point where I can just corral my attention and just, just put my whole head into what I'm doing and, and just go by gut feel. And it's, you know, sometimes, you know, when I'm done, it feels like I woke up from a dream, you know, like I was in a trance. Uh, and that's, that's the, that's exactly the mode that I want to be. Flow state, for me, yeah. These, yeah. These, these experiences to me are, are the reason for what I do. So if I, if I don't have a chance of getting that, then I wouldn't even start. All I right. love it. Well, I have one more, one more topic. Yeah. Get, get to your meaty yeah. question. Uh, yeah, you're going to like this one, Alex, because we've talked a little bit over about it on Discord, but um, I wanted to talk a little bit about perfectionism in modern nature photography. And Alex, I've noticed um, that you tend to take the side of trying to perfect your images, albeit not completely, but by eliminating distractions, things of that nature. Um, well, Guy, I see you embracing imperfection in your photographs, although that might just be, I don't know, that's just my perception. Uh, what are your individual thoughts on the idea of perfectionism in today's nature and landscape photographs? When I let Alex do that one first. Well, I think that I, I'm aware of the fact that I over sanitize at times. Like I, I just, I, well, I love that word sanitize. Judicious. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's got a negative connotation because I feel like if I do so, if I clone too many things out and perfect too many, uh, like disparate views or whatever, whatever distraction I'm removing, I mean, I'm just, I'm judicious with removing distractions. And so the point for me is to create photographs that I feel calm when I look at them, that I feel like settled in, but there is the argument and it's a compelling one that number one, that kind of. If you take it too far, you can break the connection to reality. But number two, that some tension is a good thing, that some imperfection makes it more interesting. And I, I feel like I have taken it too far to 
too sanitary, so to speak. And I actually look at guys' photos and I see something like on the edge, like a tangent or like a, an object right on the edge of the frame. And like, I wouldn't do that. And yet his photo works perfectly well. And it's like, you just prioritize the overall composition and you're not about, it doesn't seem like you're about perfecting every little detail or, you know, forcing it to be in a way that you, that you imagine it. And I, I look up to that. I mean, I, I want to be more like that. So, oh. well, it's, it's not intentional. I think for me, it's more about that flow experience, you know, to get the flow experience, you have to be, you have your attention completely focused on something. And so, you know, for me, one of the things that I, I don't really get is some of these shortcut, you know, filters, panels, whatever, where you click a button and it does a lot of work for you. I actually enjoy doing that work because then I get to focus all my attention on the photograph. Well, why would I want to shortcut that? I, I could spend, you know, minutes or longer just looking and trying different things and trying to fine tune different things, not for the sake of, of perfection, but because I'm so immersed in that photograph and in the work that I'm doing that I, I just want to prolong that, that state, that, that mindful state, that, that flow state. Uh, so yeah, but once, once that fades away, then I, kind of lose interest so i don't really need to drive it all the way to perfect perfection but just long enough that i still enjoy the process of working on it and contemplating it and thinking of it about it and trying different things well it sounds like in the field and in posts you do the same thing and that you yeah. only engage with it as long as it's intuitive and, right and you're in that state and you don't ever let yourself yeah, get me, to it overly yeah. analytical yeah, and for me, uh, you know, quote unquote, finished images—they're never really finished. But when I'm, I'm finished with it for a time, it immediately becomes much less interesting. <laughs> you know, I want to do something else. Yeah, I, I feel the same way for sure. I, I don't know. I I want to back to what you said, Alex. Um, you know, I think every of course everyone has to draw on kind of their own personal line or whatever. But I I've been trying to to get more judicious in my own work. Like I'm looking up to Alex, like, oh, I should be more cleaning up some of these things that I overlooked and things like that. But I also do think that there is something to be said for leaving imperfections in your work in terms of it just becomes more, for me, more representative of the experience I had. Like well, the more, the more yeah, the more work I do to an image, the less I, become connected to it if that makes sense i don't know like that's like i know it, it the more work i do to it, i become further detracted from what drew me to photographing it to begin with i feel like and when i take an image farther like not in terms of cloning things out but in terms of a departure from reality with the light or the color or emphasizing uh the contrast in a way that it just wasn't like when it when it's kind of a total transformation type image um i mean i feel like it makes it it's not about the original experience anymore it's right. about where it takes me now in my imagination right and i don't care at all what what it was like when i photographed it i mean i certainly value photos that that are connected to a great wilderness experience or a great moment of solitude but there are also some where i found just wonderful compositions like alongside a trail and people are walking by me and I'm annoyed by it. And it takes me way longer because of it. And then the photo in the end, I can appreciate it, but it's not because of the experience. Yeah. That yeah. Point. That makes sense. I've it's had a few of those experiences. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I feel like and Jack I, probably I mean, doesn't run into a lot of those situations. <laughs> for me, it's all about the experience. So once once the experience stops being satisfying, then there's no point. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because I think there's validity in both ideals, but I think it's uh, where do you personally, what personally motivates you to create the work, I guess? I don't know. I think that's for me where it's at. Well, it's different for me creating the work at the time of capture and finishing it later. Mm-hmm. Like what motivates me to process it and take it in a certain direction and create a certain atmosphere with it might be completely different than what I was thinking at the time I was out there. Yeah. Well, cool. I've exhausted my questions. Have you as well, Alex? <laughs> yeah, got nothing else. Well, Guy, you have been a real sport, and um, I feel like we covered so many awesome topics, and it was a lot of fun, and I really appreciate uh, everything you guys have contributed to today's episode and I will put some, some interesting stuff in the, uh, the outro for things that you guys might be promoting that you want people to learn more about. I know a guy, you just released a new book and Alex, I'm sure you've got some amazing things that you want to tell people about as well. So we'll put that in the outro. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for thinking of us. Absolutely. Thank you to both Alex and Guy for taking the time out of their busy schedules to join me for this excellent podcast episode. I had an absolute joy recording it, and I really loved the conversation. I hope everyone listening enjoyed it as well. As we mentioned in the intro, both Guy and Alex are offering some exclusive podcast discounts to listeners. First up, Guy is offering 10% discount on any order from his main website at guytall.com using the code fstop10. This of course includes Guy's incredible books, which I highly recommend to everyone. Again, that's 10% off anything on Guy's website using the code fstop10. Second, Alex is offering a 20% off discount on his latest processing tutorial to podcast Patreon supporters. To get the discount code, sign up on Patreon and send me a message. I've personally found Alex's videos to be quite inspiring and they have really helped me refine my images and realize their full potential. If you're already supporting the podcast on Patreon, just hit me up and I'll send you the code. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. <laughs>